Welcome back to the Locust Grove Podcast. You are listening to our Sunday morning sermon series, Messiah in the Psalms. In week two of our series, we are continuing the study of Psalm 2 as we see the glory and greatness of the promised Messiah. In the second half of Psalm 2, the fact that this psalm is indeed a messianic psalm pointing us to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, Jesus Christ, becomes incredibly clear. This week, we see in Psalm 2 the king's coronation and the psalmist's invitation for us to willfully submit our lives to this Christ to whom this psalm points. We hope that you are challenged and encouraged by what you hear. So we began a, a bit of a, a new journey, a three-week journey uh, last year, in, or last week, excuse me, in a few of the Psalms. We began in Psalm 2 last week, looking at the first part of Psalm chapter 2. And this uh, three-week mini-series, if you will, um, is, is all about turning our attention and preparing our hearts and our minds for the Easter season. We're really looking at the promise, at the majesty, at the glory of the Messiah in the Psalms. And so uh, this little three-week stint in two of the Psalms, Psalm 2 and Psalm 22, uh, is really preparing us for, uh, for, for, for the end of the Gospel of John as we study it through the upcoming Easter season. And so as I mentioned, we began in Psalm 2 last week. And in Psalm 2, we're really seeing the glory and greatness of the promised Messiah. It is this messianic psalm that is pointing us towards Jesus. It's causing us uh, to see in the kings of Israel, uh, as, as, as they're sort of described here, a greater, uh, more perfect king in King Jesus. Now, in case you weren't with us last week or in case you have slept since then, uh, I'll, I'll just sort of refresh you on how this psalm's laid out. Uh, because really the structure, the grammatical structure of this psalm is really important for our understanding of the psalm. And there's actually four distinct voices that we hear in this psalm. Uh, last week we saw the first two verses, or the first two voices, excuse me, in verses one through three, we see the voice of the nations. The nations are speaking. And in the voice of the nations, uh, we get this insight, if you will, into the foolish rebellion of the nations. And when we're talking about nations, we're, we're not just sort of talking about countries, big picture. Uh, the nations, the ethnos, if you will, is really talking about distinct peoples. We're talking about people, all people, from birth being in foolish rebellion against God against the, the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings. And so we see the voice of the nations in verses 1 through 3. But then there's a shift in verses 4 through 6, and there's a different voice speaking. It's really the voice of the Father. And the Father is speaking about the King or the Son. We're, we're seeing both here because the King, uh, the, the, the terminology used to speak about the King is really pointing us towards the Father's Son. And so we see Him speaking about the King or about the Son. And in, that, uh, in this voice, we see something of what we call divine derision. And so uh, we, the psalmist is now showing us what is God's response to the foolish rebellion that's discovered in the voice of the nations in verses 1 through 3. And it's this divine derision. The psalmist says God laughs 
at their rebellious schemes. And so uh, we took some time last week to consider uh, the hope and encouragement that those verses provide for those who are in the Son. For those who have surrendered their life to King Jesus, we have confidence in knowing regardless of what sort of evil schemes may befall us, we can have hope that they do not concern the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Regardless of what medical diagnosis we get, regardless of uh, the number that is on your paycheck at the end of the week, regardless of what that family member or that church member has said to you or done to you, God is not threatened. And we see that He laughs at any scheme of the enemy uh, to uh, destroy or to, uh, to try to uh, to, to discredit His name. But now, this morning, we're considering the second part of this psalm, and we'll see two new voices this morning speaking. In verses 7 through 9, uh, we see really the voice of the king or the son who is speaking. And then in verses 10 through 12, goes back to the voice of the psalmist. Or like I said last week, we might also say this is the voice of the Spirit who is inspiring the psalmist to Right. And now in the voice of the in the voice of the king or the voice of the son, we see him speaking about the king's coronation. And so we'll look at that this morning. We'll look at the king's coronation. But then the psalmist invites us to respond. And we'll spend some time looking at that this morning. But the voice of the psalmist or the voice of the spirit is pleading with the nations, is pleading with the people, pleading with you and I to respond to this king, this eternal king with willful submission. And so we will see all of this uh, connect together and play out this morning. I invite you to read with me Psalm chapter 2 beginning in verse 7. I will declare the decree the Lord hath said unto me, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. Ask of me, and I shall give thee the heathen of thine inheritance, and the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron, thou shalt dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Be wise now therefore, O ye kings, be instructed, ye judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear, and rejoice with trembling. Watch verse 12. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry, and ye perish from the way, when His wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are all they that put their trust in Him. Let's pray together. Lord, we confess with our mouths and our hearts this morning that this is indeed Your inspired and infallible Word. Lord, this is what we need more than anything else. For it is Your Word that is the bread of life. It is Your Word that sustains us, but Lord, it is Your Word that will transform us. And so, Lord, give us ears to hear and give us eyes to see. Lord, humble our hearts and soften our hearts that we might respond to Your Word this morning the way that You intend for it to be responded to, Lord. And we pray, we pray that Your Holy Spirit would illuminate the truth of this text, Lord, that we might understand with a great clarity and that we might respond with an incredible willingness to surrender our lives to You and serve You for Your glory and for the expansion of Your kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven. And we ask all of this in the name of Your Son, Jesus. Amen. Amen. So as we sort of work through the second part of this psalm, verse by verse, we notice in verse 7 that this is indeed the voice of the Son or the verse of the King if you will. And 
as I mentioned a moment ago, we have to remember that in the first half of this psalm, we heard the voice of the nations and we've heard the voice of the Father. And now the king or the son is saying, the Lord has said to me, I will declare the decree. Right? And what is the decree? That you are my son and I have begotten you. So what's happening here is that the king, King David in this sense, as he's writing this psalm, is recalling what God has said at his coronation. Now if you, uh, if you take time and you look back at 2 Samuel chapter 7, you don't have to turn there this morning, you certainly can if you want, uh, you'll see that this language is coronation language. This is the language that's used commonly. It's certainly the same kind of language that's used at the coronation of King David in 2 Samuel chapter 7 when he is installed as king. This is essentially what is said to him, that he would be God's son. And now, why is that? Why would God call the king of Israel His son? Well, that's simply because God is king and His son was to be a representation of Him. And so the Israelite king was, was instructed, was uh, coronated as a king, but really just as a representation of the one true king, of God Himself. Now, as you read the Old Testament narrative, you'll find that every single king of Israel fell far short of being an adequate representation of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Uh, failed drastically. Even the best of the best, King David, failed in being an accurate representation of God. And so that's the reason this is all pointing us towards King Jesus, uh, God's own Son, who He has begotten that would be the perfect King, right? That would be a perfect representation of who God is. But it was all part of the same package. To be Israel's King was to be God's Son. And so they would use this sort of um, high-flown language to speak about divine sonship and about global inheritance. It was all used at the coronation ceremony. But again, all of this is just a type of foreshadowing, right? That's what we would call this in our biblical understanding. It's a type of foreshadowing of the one who is truly the eternal son, who is truly the king of kings, who is Jesus Christ. And so without mistake... I want to be very clear this morning that as we read Psalm 2, Psalm 2 is meant not to turn our eyes upon King David, but it's meant to turn our eyes upon King Jesus. This is a messianic psalm that is helping establish for us the greatness and the glory of King Jesus. And so what does he say here? He says, Today I have begotten you. That's interesting, isn't it? This language suggests really a moment in time, right? When the king would take up these titles and these responsibilities. Now as we think about how this psalm is used in the New Testament, I mentioned last week several ways that it's used in the New Testament. And I mentioned how verse 7, uh, this verse is specifically alluded to and directly quoted a number of times. And as we think about that, we see that Jesus is referred to and the Father spoke of Him as His beloved Son, both at His baptism and at the transfiguration. Right? It's the same kind of coronation language that's used in verse 7 of Psalm 2 that's used at the baptism of Jesus and at the transfiguration of Jesus. But as we read the New Testament carefully, what we see is that at the resurrection above all, the kingship of Jesus is celebrated and resurrected. 
Now, actually, we have this really incredible opportunity in just a little bit to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus through baptism. Right, And it is. It's that, it's that being baptized into Christ, being uh, buried with Him and raised to walk in a new life that Psalm 2 is pointing towards. Right, It's pointing towards the Messiah, the King that would make it possible for all of us to have new life in Him. Right? To, to leave behind our hopeless rebellion, or as the nations put it in their own language in verses 1 through 3, our foolish rebellion, and as we'll see in just a little bit, turn to Him in faithful submission. And so what an incredible opportunity that we have this morning, not just to study what the text says, but actually to see the text in effect, transforming lives and celebrating the resurrection of Jesus through baptism. And this is certainly where the kingship of Jesus is most prominently declared and where it is most prominently celebrated. You see, it is the resurrection of Jesus that distinguishes Him from all the other Israelite kings. Church Jesus rose from the dead. He is not there. As they would have put it in the book of Acts, uh, you can go check on David's tomb and there is a body there. But if you go check on the tomb of Jesus, there is nobody because King Jesus has been raised from the dead. It has been historically disputed, but it is one of the most historically and even scientifically proven facts in all of history. One of the, not one of the greatest, the greatest miracle of all time that Jesus Christ was crucified on a cross and was raised on the third day. And the great truth of that miracle is that you and I, through faith and repentance, can participate in that resurrection as well. And so, as we think about this, as we think about the empty tomb of Jesus, it's a good reminder for us today as we prepare our minds and we begin thinking about Easter. And it's a very simple truth, isn't it? But it's an important truth. Because Christ is alive we have hope. Let me say that again. Because Christ is alive, we have hope. Man, I thought maybe we would get a baby crying or something there. And that's not, that's like, that's not new information to most of you. If it is new information, it's really good information, isn't it? It's really good news. Now, again, it's only good news is if, you're, if your hope is in Christ. If your hope isn't in Christ, then it's really bad news. We'll actually see that in just a moment. But this is common language that we would use in the church, that uh, because Christ is alive, we have hope. And we talk about this all the time with different sort of phrases that may be common to us. There's, there's, difference, there's a difference in knowing something intellectually and knowing something uh, by experience, isn't there? Uh, I can say we have hope in Jesus Christ because Jesus Christ is alive and everyone in this room can know that intellectually. You can say amen affirming that without a doubt. But I want to ask you this morning, is your head knowledge reflective of your life experience? Think about the amount of hope that you have on a daily basis. Think about the amount of hope that you have in good times or in bad times. But don't just think about the amount of hope that you have. Think about what causes you to have hope. Because this is a real danger for anyone. For a Christian, certainly for a non-Christian, right? For someone who has not believed 
in Christ Jesus, but it's a danger for all of us. For our hope to be placed in something else. And a, and a, good, a good litmus test is what types of things do you most celebrate in your life? Now, I don't know that this is a standard procedure, but I'm going to take just a moment for personal confession. <clears throat> and I have a witness here that can verify this. It's no secret um, that, that I'm a huge Carolina fan, right? Praise God. Hallelujah. Amen. This was a good day yesterday. But I'll confess to you, for a large portion of my fandom... I really struggled with placing too much hope, maybe, in what the Tar Heels are doing. And here's, here's the real problem. It's not just basketball or football. Man, if they're playing polo or underwater basket weaving, whatever, I'm all in, right? I'm invested. And so, sure, I would get excited during the games or whatever, but my mood would change like for the rest of the day or week or month depending on how things went on the court or the field, right? And if you're a sports fan, you can probably relate. This is a safe place. We can, I can be honest with each other. <clears throat> and what I began to realize, and this is just one example. We do this with another number of things, right? What I began to realize is that really your hope is in the things that you most celebrate, right? And it's not that I wasn't a Christian, Right? You can certainly be a Tar Heel fan and be a Christian. Make no mistake about it. But it wasn't that I wasn't a Christian. It wasn't that I wasn't saved. It's just that I had misplaced priorities about this thing in my life. Parents, a great example. What sort of things do you celebrate in your child's life? Right? Do you, do you really celebrate athletic achievement? Or maybe do you really celebrate academic achievement? Because what our kids see us celebrating are the things that they'll put their hope in. Right, And so when they see you celebrating a promotion at work, when they see you celebrating a raise at work, when they see you celebrating their academic success or their athletic success, then they're going to grow up placing their hope in those things. Now, of course, hopefully I don't have to tell you the things we should be celebrating, or of course, something that we're certainly going to celebrate in just a moment, which is new life in Christ through baptism. But that's not just a one-time celebration, is it? We continually celebrate our own maturity in Christ our own growing relationship with Christ. We should celebrate that in our children. And so I just ask you this morning, what are the things that you really celebrate in this life? What are the things that really causes your mood to fluctuate? Because the things that you are celebrating are probably the things that you are placing your hope in. So I want to invite you this morning, if you're celebrating something other than Christ, then understand you either have already misplaced your hope or you are at risk of misplacing your hope. And I would invite you this morning as we study Psalm 2, celebrate Christ Jesus because He is our hope. And isn't it true? Isn't it true that as we think about celebrating Jesus... That baptism in just a little bit will be this incredible symbol, this incredible public display of an inward spiritual reality that has already take place, taken place of what it really means to celebrate the King who rose from the dead, who is seated at the Father's right hand, and who will return again to bring the nations, claim the nations for Himself. Now, the passage in Acts chapter 13 that I mentioned last week 
that references verse 7. It sort of makes the connection between Jesus' sonship and being celebrated, uh, being celebrated and the resurrection being celebrated is in this sermon that Paul preaches at Antioch. It's in Acts chapter 13, verse 30. And what's happening in this sermon is, is Paul is, is, um, is relaying this really important truth to the Christians in Antioch. And he's telling them that God has raised him from the dead. Right? And not just that He raised Him from the dead, but after He raised Him from the dead, for many days He appeared to those who Paul identifies as those that came up with Him from Galilee to Jerusalem. And he says something very important about those who He appeared to, who came up with Him from Galilee to Jerusalem. He says they are now His witnesses to the people. And they are the ones that are bringing the good news, right? The gospel, that's what that is. That are bringing the gospel, that, that what God had promised to the fathers, right? What He had promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. What had been, what had been promised and pointed to through the kingship of Israel, through King David in Psalm 2, is being fulfilled, has been fulfilled in Jesus and he even says, Paul says in reference, he says, In the second psalm, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Now, in other words, the cross and the resurrection were the great turning points in redemptive history. It is true that he was indeed, speaking of Jesus, born a king. And it's true that as he was ministering, he was, uh, the, the kingdom of God was breaking forth. But the great turning point in which he is declared and celebrated to be the King of kings and the Lord of lords, Paul says, was at his glorious resurrection. And so this is also how, he, how Paul begins the book of Romans when he says Jesus was declared to be the Son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead. Right? We already said it. No king of Israel had ever risen from the dead. But Jesus is the king to end all kings. Jesus is the ultimate son, the one who says, All authority has been given to me in heaven and in earth, and so go into all the nations and make disciples. Hebrews 1.5 uses this verse to speak of his superiority to angels. Hebrews 5.5 shows us his exaltation after his resurrection and how it leads to sort of this mediatorial priestly role of him interceding for us now. In other words, New Testament writers thought about Psalm 2 when they thought about Christ's resurrection, his exaltation, his superiority to every being in heaven and on earth and his intercessory work for us now. The New Testament writers thought of Psalm 2. And so it is indeed a rich and an amazing psalm. And so church Christ, our risen and ascended King, rules over all. He is exalted above all of heaven. He is interceding now for us. And our weary souls should rejoice at that news, shouldn't it? That Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead. But not that He's just been raised from the dead. Now He sits at the right hand of the Father and He intercedes for us. And so we live in a rebellious world. And our minds get weary. Our bodies get tired. It feels as if our souls may faint, but the Son, the King of kings, and the Lord of lords intercedes on our behalf that we may persevere. Now verse 8 is also uh, never really fully fulfilled in an Israelite king as it, as it says, uh, Ask of me and I shall make the nations your inheritance and the ends of the earth your possession. 
Now, Jesus' rule will reach the ends of the earth. Without a doubt, Scripture affirms that His rule will reach the ends of the earth. And this has not happened fully yet, right? This is one of those um, aspects that's, uh, that's in the process. It's happening now, right? It's why we seek to take the gospel to the nations. Because Jesus isn't just the king of one particular nation. He is the king of all nations. He isn't just the king of one particular people. He is the king of all peoples. And so this was promised all the way back in Genesis 49.10. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples or of the nations. Now this is really important for us as we think about being disciples, as we think about what it means to live on mission, to support world missions. It's important that we, that we go with the authority of Christ, with the power of Christ, and with the confidence that Christ will rule over all the nations one day. You see, it's a glorious mission that we get to be a part of because the outcome is already determined. The crusade that we are on is not a crusade with a sword. It's a crusade with the gospel. And the crusade that we are on is one that promises to reach the ends of the earth. That all the nations may know that He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And so what should we do with this? That's the really practical question, isn't it? It's good information to have. It's important information to have to know that Psalm 2 is pointing towards Jesus. It's important to know that He is the resurrected Messiah that is the King of all kings. But what should we do with it? What should we do with the fact of Jesus' sonship and His kingship? Verses 10 through 12 of this psalm give us the answer. And as, the psalm, as we return to the voice of the psalmist, uh, we see that the invitation is wise submission. Now, it's really interesting. You would think that after what has just been said about the foolish rebellion of the nations made up of people uh, really wanting to be like God uh, and rebelling against His authority because they want to be gods themselves, and you would think that in light of God's sovereignty that we saw over them and in light of the fact that He's given a way to know Him through the Messiah and yet they continue to rebel, you would think that these final verses would basically say, hey, sorry about your luck, but you're toast. Right? You would think, you'd be like, you don't have any chance now. Right? I've promised and I've promised and I've promised uh, that I will make a way uh, for you to be reunited with me. Reunited in relationship, reunited through submission. But here you are, you're still in this foolish rebellion. So it would make a lot of sense to me. It would probably make a lot of sense for you, uh, for, uh, for the Spirit, just to say through the psalmist, you are toast. It's over. You had your chance and it's done. Your opportunity has passed. But isn't it incredible? That's not what happens at all. Instead of the psalmist deriding the nations, convicting and condemning the nations, the psalmist makes a plea to the nations. He makes an appeal to the rebellious people. He makes an appeal to those who have continued to reject the kingship of God, who have continued to reject the one who perfectly represents the kingship of God. And so we see now something of the great love of God. And it's the love of God even towards His enemies, isn't it? As He's appealing to them to turn to the King 
so that they may not perish. Notice he says now, therefore kings be wise, or kings be instructed, he says, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Very literally what he says there. And so we have to ask, who is the audience? Who is the audience that the psalmist is writing to in these last few verses? Quite simply, the audience is all the earth. It is all the peoples of the earth, all of the nations of the earth. Everyone who has ever lived on the earth, past, present, and even future. Now serve the Lord with fear and trembling. really seems like a bit of a strange combination, doesn't it? Serving the Lord with fear and trembling. And so there's rejoicing, but there's trembling. There's a fear, but there's also happiness. How are these two things reconciled? Right? How does how is this invitation even make sense? I think the old John Newton hymn captures it perfectly. Newton wrote, It was grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved. It's grace. It's the grace of God that causes these, two, these, these things to, to coexist together. Fear and service, fear and happiness, rejoicing and trembling. You see, there's relief and joy and there's fear and trembling. And we are called, we are invited to serve the Lord in fear and to rejoice with trembling. Now in the final verse, verse 12, man, this is such a, such a vivid psalm, psalm. It ends so vividly. What does it say? Kiss the Son. Kiss the Son lest He be angry. Kiss the Son lest you should perish from the way when His wrath is kindled. It's interesting. Uh, there's no social distancing with King Jesus, is there? This psalm certainly doesn't allow much room for any kind of social dist distancing. The psalmist says, kiss the Son. Kiss the Messiah. Kiss King Jesus. Jesus. Of course, this is a way that we display affection. It's a way that we display loyalty. It's a way of paying homage. In 1 Kings 19.18, God says to a discouraged Elijah, Elijah, I have kept for myself 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal or kissed him. Right? And so, so this is really an expression of worship. It's an invitation to worship Jesus as the King of kings, as the Lord of lords. And Psalm 2 is, is ending with this exact same appeal to us, to pay homage to Jesus, to worship Him, to kiss Him. Now, listen, the idea of kissing someone who is not your family is a bit uncomfortable to many of us. And depending on who your family is, it may be uncomfortable thinking about kissing some of your family. Right? It's, a, it's an uncomfortable idea in our 21st century context, isn't it? And it would get really awkward if I asked you how many people you had kissed in your life. Right? Husbands are looking at your wives and saying, just you, sweetie. Just you. <laughs> but this idea of kissing the sun far surpasses any idea of kissing that you and I may have. This is talking about committing our life to the worship of this sun. This is about willfully submitting to the king who has been coronated as the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And so I want to ask you this morning, have you ever kissed the son? Have you ever kissed King Jesus? Have you ever submitted your life to Jesus? You know, Scripture gives us two ways that we can kiss Christ. 
And in fact, everyone in this room will kiss Christ in one of these two ways. We can kiss Christ like Judas kissed Christ, having had an opportunity to respond in faith, having had an opportunity to understand who He is as the King of kings and the Lord of lords, but at the end, at the, at the culmination of it all, turning from Him and kissing Him in rejection and betrayal. That's exactly what Judas did. But there's also this near eastern kiss of love and loyalty that's in mind here in Psalm 12. And that's what we do, first of all, in faith and repentance. It's what we do in baptism. It's not that baptism saves us. It's that baptism is a public display that we have surrendered our lives to Jesus. That we have indeed kissed the Son because we love Him. We want to serve Him. We energetically and affectionately, trustingly kiss the Son. We pay homage to Him. And listen, this is the appeal of the psalmist. He says, listen, will you please, nations, will you stop your rebellion and would you pay homage to Jesus Christ? Would you acknowledge Him as the King of heaven and of earth? And friends, that's the appeal to us today. Would you stop your foolish rebellion? And would you respond to Jesus Christ as King? Because one day we will all stand before this King. And we will either find out that we have kissed Him in betrayal or we will find out that we have kissed Him in fear and trembling. Those are the options. You know, one of my preaching heroes is D. Martin Lloyd-Jones, perhaps one of the most well-known preachers of the 20th century. He preached in London for over 30 years. As a matter of fact, before Martin Lloyd-Jones was a preacher, he was a physician. But then he went into ministry, a successful ministry, a strong preaching ministry, proclaiming the gospel. And would you know that the second to last sermon that Martin Lloyd-Jones ever preached was on Psalm 2. And one month after preaching this psalm, he would die of cancer. He already knew that he had cancer. He was, ba he was battling cancer. Uh, some of his congregation even said you could almost see the physical battle taking place as he preached from Psalm 2. Martin Lloyd-Jones was a small man, a short man. They said the short man stood behind the pulpit and he pleaded with the congregation to kiss the sun. As sweat dripped down his face and as he fought life's final battle, he said, kiss the Son. The reason Martin Lloyd-Jones preached this psalm so passionately as his second to last message was because he knew that eternity hung in the balance. He knew that our response to King Jesus is the only thing that is eternally significant in this life. And it's with this force that the psalmist is doing this for us today, passionately telling us to kiss the Son. Why? So that you and I don't perish. He's saying don't reject Him, but embrace Him. Love Him. And notice the promise or, or, or the benediction at the end of this psalm. What does it say? At the end of verse 12, Blessed are all they that put their trust in Him. Another way of translating this would be, Blessed are all they that take refuge in Him. I want you to know this morning, regardless of if you are young or old, there is no such thing as refuge from Jesus, only refuge in Jesus. 
there will be no refuge from His final judgment, which is displayed for us in the middle portion of this psalm as the nations are given to Him. There will be no refuge from Him. There is only refuge in Him. And so if you have never taken refuge in Jesus, I I plead with you this morning as strongly as I possibly can, would you surrender your life to Jesus? Would you kiss the Son? And would you stop looking for refuge from Him and find refuge in Him? The only safe place for any of us to be today is in Jesus Christ. And so this psalm ends with an evangelistic invitation, doesn't it? It defines the human problem, which is our revolt against God. None of us are spared from this problem. All of us are equal in our revolt against God. It is the problem of all of humanity since the fall of Adam. But then this psalm doesn't just tell us the problem that we face. It tells us of the one solution that we have, God's Son. It warns against judgment to those who rebel, but it tells us of the way to the Father's house which comes through Jesus Christ, which comes to those who kiss the Son, who receive Him and love Him. Blessed are all those who take refuge in Him. Listen, it is Christ and Christ alone who fully satisfies. It is Christ and Christ alone who is only worthy of our full celebration. If you remember last week, we began with the question, who is in charge? The psalmist has really answered that question for us now, hasn't he? King Jesus is in charge. King Jesus has been coronated. He has been dubbed King of Kings and Lord of Lords because He is the only King who was ever crucified, dying a sinless death, and raised again to defeat death, hell, and the grave for all eternity. King Jesus is in charge. And if you have taken refuge in King Jesus, then church, you ought to be glad that He is in charge. I want to invite you, if you will, to stand with me as Brother Eddie comes. We're going to pray together and we're going to sing together. Before we do I just want to, I just want to ask you to bow your head with me for just a moment. Let's just take a second to think about what this psalmist has said to us. What this psalmist has asked of us. Have you kissed the Son? As I said, the reality is one day we will all find out that we've kissed the Son and we'll find out that we've kissed the Son in one of two ways. Like Judas in betrayal and denial or like the psalmist in love and submission. If you've never kissed Jesus this morning, if you've never surrendered your life to Jesus this morning, I want to plead with you to do that now. Listen, you can be saved anywhere. It doesn't have to be in church. It doesn't have to be in an altar. It can be anywhere. But you will not be promised another opportunity. And there is no better opportunity than to publicly say, I surrender my life to the Son. There's something very important about faith in Jesus. It's a public faith. It's not a private faith. And so whether you're saved at home or whether you're saved in in church, whether you're saved driving down the road, at some point, genuine faith is a public faith. And so I want to invite you this morning to turn in faith to Jesus. To publicly declare 
that you are turning from your sinful rebellion joined in with the nations in Psalm verses Psalm 2 verses 1 through 3 and you are surrendering your life to the Son. Listen, you may be you may be young. If you are, grab your parents and come and pray. You may be old. You may realize that you've been playing a game, that you've just been going through the motions that your life is not marked by willful submission, it's only been marked by convenient participation. And that was really the problem of Judas, wasn't it? He participated with Jesus as long as it was convenient, but as soon as it stopped being convenient, He denied Him. He kissed Him in betrayal. And so as we pray this morning, as we sing this morning, I want to invite you to come. And I want to invite you to submit your life to the King of kings and to the Lord of lords. Tomorrow is not promised. This afternoon is not promised. But salvation is promised to all of those who will come and acknowledge their rebellion before the King of kings and turn from it in repentance and place their faith in Christ. I invite you to come as I pray and we sing together. Lord, we are thankful for Your Word. We are thankful that though we do not deserve it, Lord, I did not deserve it. I was just as awful and rebellious as the nations in Psalm 2. I was just as evil as Judas betraying your son and handing him over to the authorities. And yet because of your benevolent grace, it was extended towards me. I had an opportunity to acknowledge my rebellion and turn towards you in fear and trembling, rejoicing in the salvation offered in the King of Kings. And so Lord, it is by your work alone that we are saved. And so even now, Lord, would you search each of our hearts? Would you extend the grace of repentance that we may confess our sin before you that we may boldly proclaim publicly that You are indeed the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And may anyone in this room who has not kissed the Son, dedicated their life to serving and worshiping Him, may today be the day that they pass from death into life, a reality that we have the opportunity to celebrate through baptism in just a moment. Lord, humble us, instruct us, and lead us to respond to You in fear and trembling, rejoicing in the mighty name of Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. We want to encourage you to be able to engage with Locust Grove on a new level. We are now receiving questions. These questions can be theological questions, questions about the Bible, about biblical history, Christian history, church history, or even questions concerning contemporary moral and ethical issues. You can submit these questions in person when you enter our sanctuary in the vestibule. There's a box there for you to be able to write your questions and submit them. Or you can submit them online. You can reach out to us through our church email, locustgrovebaptistchurch at gmail.com, through our Facebook page, through our church website, or even through our podcasting platform. You can submit your questions directly to us at anchor.fm forward slash locustgrove.com. 
podcast. We can't wait to hear some of the great questions that you'll have. We can't wait to be able to answer those questions and make sure that the church, that the body of Christ, that disciples are well informed and well equipped to be able to go into this world and make much of Jesus.